0: So this begins what I think I'm going to call season three of this podcast. First season was a story that I made up just to give podcasting a try. That was Beelzebub and Lucifer. second season was more or less stories short stories that I've published by published by um, Literary journals and websites. And this season, I'm going to call First Chapters. Uh, not sure how many episodes there are going to be, but my plan is basically to record the first chapter of my novels, uh, a novella, some longer short stories that I've written. And we'll just see how it goes. The first one is uh, the first chapter to The Irreparable Past, um, a novella I published in November of 2019. Um, It is famous for having irreparable spelled incorrectly because I don't think irreparable is the right way to... um, uh, say the word for purposes of this story. Uh, and if I had the guts, I would do this entire reading in a Southern accent, accent but I don't. Uh, and so I'll just read it the way I talk without an accent or with a Californian accent, whatever. Anyway, here you go. Chapter one of the irreparable past. Before the sun finished its descent, I walked to the porch and sat in the rocker that over the years had worn the finish off the pine boards underneath. Of course there was hardly a touch of varnish anywhere on the old porch, or the house for that matter. The railing was rough and smooth at the same time, worn and pitted by the elements. Years had passed since a coat of paint was applied to the old boards that formed a decaying barrier between the wind and sun and the cabin's interior, eternally warmed by a fire on the hearth. I looked out over the bay, calm now in advance of the evening's approach. The sun burned at the horizon's edge, an eerie half-ball of fire, sending ribbons of orange turning to red and purple through the cotton clouds dotting the sky above the water. Near the shore an egret hirked and jerked as it sought its nightcap in the shallows. Bob, as I'd come to call the bird, and I had an understanding. With the sun that rises and sets, and the breeze that comes in off the bay, and the sound of the whippoorwills announcing the coming of night, Bob honored me with his presence. I had yet to figure out what I provided him in return. The egret was my one constant companion on the shores of Sullivan Bay. Yes, Harold from down the way might sit on my porch every now and then, more often than then than now. I'd take even less if I had the choice. He would walk along the shore and approach my porch without an invitation. While I remained in the rocker, Harold would sit on the top step of the porch and lean back against the post, stretching his legs out along the edge of the step. With a sigh, he might cross them at the ankles. Harold always started with a, how ya? For the next hour we might talk, our conversation enlarging the silence of my life on the bay Really, Harold talked and I tried not to listen, instead continuing to watch the ripples on the water's surface and looking for the telltale sign of fish breaching the surface. Or I watched the sky, trying to identify from which spot Bob would make his arrival late in the day, all the while nodding absently and saying, "Uh uh-huh, here and there. Although I wished to be alone and craved the silence over Harold's rants about the modern world, I'd yet to achieve the right level of rudeness to send him packing before he was talked out. Yep, I'd nod until the end when he finally would stand and crack his back. Well, thanks for the talk. You ought to come over sometime. Dorothy can cook you up some grub. Bet you get tired of cooking for yourself. Sure thing, I might say as Harold would set off. Dorothy, Harold's wife, came along even less frequently. They'd approach, Harold with a strong and sure stride, Dorothy a little bit more tentatively. I figured she knew, as most women would, that I neither wanted nor needed their company. In the absence of an invitation, Dorothy must have felt my disdain for them. She sat on my porch anyway, both of them on the creaky step in the middle that bowed under their weight. I was sure that one day that board would snap and drop the two of them unceremoniously to the ground, Then and only then would I laugh and invite them into my cabin on the bay. Until that blessed event occurred, Harold and Dorothy were just there. Harold and Dorothy, sitting next to each other, they shared my view and stole my silence, prattling on about their golf game and the new car they just bought. Dorothy, 15 years younger than Harold, still had a few curves that could make a man stop and linger. She was mostly quiet on these intrusions. Harold always spoke of his children with awe and reverence. They weren't Dorothy's. She was the second wife, the younger model. In her silence while Harold talked, I could sense a divide between them. His kids, not hers. Golf, his game. She only played because that's what Harold wanted. The car, a two-door convertible, his little toy. When Harold talked about his kids, I sometimes wondered what my own children were doing. Charlie was a teacher, but I never kept track of which grade or subject. Jacqueline stayed home to mind her kids while her husband worked 80 hours a week for a law firm that paid him a pittance for his slave labor. Once I finished with my memories, I would return my attention to the two hindriders sitting on my step. The thin piece of wood that held them up in the middle of steps to my porch always intrigued me. In silence, I begged it to do my bidding, to snap and drop them unceremoniously to the ground. Again and again it bowed, but did not break, rejecting my pleas. I couldn't help but smile at the thought. If one of them had looked back at me at the moment when my mirth was at its peak, they surely would have thought I was listening and smiling with them. If they only knew. Harold and Dorothy always left the way they came. Suddenly, as though a bell only they heard had rung to summon them elsewhere, they would stand with Harold turning to me. Enjoy the rest of the day, he might say, while reaching his hand under Dorothy's elbow. "Uh Uh-huh, I'd reply. Dorothy always looked at me and nodded. She was signaling something with that nod. I was never sure what exactly it was, but I knew she knew. Then they were off. Harold striding strongly and surely, Dorothy leaving more tentatively, looking back as she reached the path that took them home. As soon as they were gone, I would return my gaze to the bay. Once they were swallowed up by the shrubs and the lapping of the water overcame the noise of their fading conversation, I would leave the porch and head in the opposite direction, following a trail that wound through knee-high grass and ended at a small spit of land that jutted out thirty feet or so. At the very tip, I liked to crouch on my aching knees and look out to the water. It surrounded me almost entirely, and I could imagine that I was an island in the middle of a vast, undisturbed sea. In that spot, no senseless words could invade. I was alone, as long as I didn't look behind me and remember the spit that brought me there. And yes, once or twice a year each of my children visited, never together and never for long, They fulfilled their duty, and I tolerated the cacophony they brought. Cars came and went. The grandkids dashed about, splashing where Bob liked to feed. Yelling and crying, they disturbed the peace that Bob and I had come to appreciate. Charlie came in the muggy heat of summer, as he must, given his profession. He was divorced, so it was just his two boys, Junior and Ricky, and him. The three amigos, he called them. Often enough that everybody else was tired of hearing the phrase. Each spring, Charlie called and promised they'd come down for a week. By the time they arrived, the week had deteriorated to a long weekend. Come in Thursday, leave Monday morning, because there was always a game to play, a camp to get to, a reason to, regretfully, cut it short. I have to admit that there was usually a moment when little Ricky got me to laugh and leave the comfort of my porch. It was the one weekend of the year when I pulled the paddle boat out. How could I resist the little guy's pleading? The smile on his face when we paddled a few hundred feet out almost made the rest of the weekend worth it. The din of the three amigos drove Bob away with the first slamming car door and shrill shriek from one of the youngest amigos. He would dip his beak one last time and then lift off, pushing his wings to escape before the intruders had splashed into his space, the waves driving his feet away. It's what saddened me the most about my family's visits. In the coming, they drove away my constant companion. Although I knew Bob would return, I worried that he might find a quieter, calmer piece of permanence to feed and leave me to my lonely end. The laughter of the boys didn't hold me for long. By Saturday evening, a second day without the egret's graceful entrance, gliding with his wings extended, then folding them to settle down in the shallows, in front of my cabin soured my mood. With sunset, their laughter was harsh on my ears, their smiles no longer pleasing, their cries when they were hurt or didn't get their way like a million fingernails on the chalkboard of my soul. I tolerated the Sunday of their visits, looking forward to Monday morning when they left. The first thing I did when they were finally gone was throw away the extra Pop-Tarts and boxes of macaroni and cheese they'd left behind and then I'd mix a little yeast, sugar, and salt, add some water and flour, and knead until my shoulders tired. With the dough under a towel, I would toss some greens and throw in some random vegetables from the garden behind the cabin, a place the children barely knew existed. While the salad steeped in a light dressing that married the flavors, the dough took center stage and I hand formed a few rolls baking them and bringing the cabin back to life with the yeasty aroma of freshly baked bread. With a salad, a warm roll. No, the bread would be hot enough that I treated it as a hot potato. And a beer in hand, I would return to my porch. On the table by the rocker, there was a vase where I kept a single bloom from one of the three rose bushes that provided the centerpiece to the garden. There was silence in a dropping sun, And to my delight, more often than not, Bob appeared with one leg retracted, waiting, peering into the bay's shallows. The holidays were for Jacqueline and hers, two girls and a boy. A couple of days before Christmas, they would arrive. Late Christmas Eve, Johnston showed up. It was as early as the firm allowed him to leave. In the trunk of his car were the presents. It was a good thing he arrived so late. Otherwise, the fiction of Santa might be more difficult to maintain. The children, Jelena, Joanne, and Joseph, went to bed with visions of the old man visiting in the night and woke up to their father, bleary-eyed and chugging black coffee at the kitchen table, and a tree with shiny wrapped packages underneath, representing a father's guilt and covering more than half of the scuffed hardwood of the cabin's main room. The Christmas morning screams of. of delight, bored a hole in my head, and left me with a migraine by noon. I had my druthers, the gifts would be swept away, and in their place the children would sit before the fire, playing cards or telling stories. I may tell them of the days I spent chasing first Nazis and then Communists in the woods surrounding the cabin, of the days I was convinced a whale lived below the surface of the bay, or maybe when they're a touch older, I could tell them of real war and its horrors. Or maybe not. In my own home, I had no say or choice in the matter. Wrapping paper covered everything. The children flitted from this to that. Johnston sat in a corner, maybe even quieter and more removed than I. While the screams bore away, I imagined boring one of my own holes into Johnston's head. Was he just tired? Was he thinking about what awaited him upon his return to the office? Or did he, did he see the horror I saw? Whatever happened to the pleasure in small things? Did the children realize all that they missed amidst all the things they acquired? Their father worked like a dog and had 20 minutes or less each week for them, and their mother tapped away endlessly on her phone and computer. Where would all of this end? Maybe there was no point to saving the environment if nobody could bother to look up to enjoy it. When the day ended, Johnston would already be gone, a late night drive to get back to work. Within a day or two, the rest of his family followed him, leaving me once again blessedly alone in a silence that was the only thing I desired. I would clean up the mess left behind and in the winter's chill return to my chair on the porch. Inside, freshly diced beef, vegetables, and potatoes might simmer in a stew that slowly suffused the cabin with an aroma of richness that wiped away the last trace of family. By afternoon's end, I would have a bowl with my feet up on the porch's railing. In the darkness, I knew Bob wouldn't be there, but for that brief pause, I didn't need his company. It's enough that the screams were gone, the wasteful consumption erased, and I wouldn't have to worry about them for another year. I could just sit and smell the fresh air of the bay in the winter, eat my stew, And now I was where I wanted wanted to be. Without my family present, or Harold or Dorothy, the rest of the time I felt the sting of loss. As surely as night followed day, when the sun's final edge sank below the horizon, Bob would dip his head one last time and stretch his wings. With a graceful push, he'd lift off and soar away on a powerful thrust of his wings every few seconds, his call echoing back to me. Each night, I watched the white speck in the day's last light until he disappeared into the darkness, his destination a mystery to me. If I could, I would have my own wings and be able to soar as Bob did, gliding across the surface of the bay, honking as I went, and disappearing to my night's haven. It would be a place where, just as I knew not where Bob went, the remnants of my past and present and the persons of my children and neighbors would have no clue of my whereabouts. Years earlier, when I retreated to this cabin built by my father before I was born, I came to see him pass and then remained with a, with the intent of hiding. Family is persistent, even when a hand is held figuratively to their face. What is it they wanted to accomplish through their visits? Did they hope to apply a curative salve to their guilt or somehow convince me that the hurt of the past was no longer worth holding on to. And the neighbors had even less justification. Apparently, an old man cannot be alone on the bay with his thoughts licking his wounds, with the sights and smells which bring back memories both dear and sad. No, they were good neighbors, so they visited and ignored my impatience with them. I longed for a day when I could sit on my porch Drinking a cup of coffee as the sun rises and warms the air around me, which ends with the sun's fall and everything in between is quiet, beautiful and unblemished by those who think they know better. Well, those were the days of my life. Why was this so? Where did things go wrong? My memories have not faded. The hurt continues to simmer And with it, my need for silence grows. And that is the end of chapter one of the Irreparable Past. Available for Kindle and in paperback on Amazon.